Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. If you don't know me, my name is John, and I serve on staff as our uh, Connections Pastor. And uh, I wanted to kick off our time together this morning a little bit different. Uh, so if you're able, why don't you go ahead and uh, stand uh, for a moment, uh, and I'm going to read through uh, the, the main passage that we're going to be unpacking uh, together this morning. And so this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, uh, and this is what it says, verses 1 to 11. So then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift, up, uh, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus answered him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, angels came and attended to him. Thank you, you can be seated. And that's not something that we do every time that we're together, but, but every so often it's important to do something a little bit different that kind of shakes us out of our routine, that draws our attention uh, to why we're here and what we're doing. And, and it draws our attention to really the gift that we've received, the gift that we have in the Word. And so it doesn't have to be a big show, uh, pageantry or anything like that. Something as, as simple as standing uh, together as a church family to, to hear and listen to the Word. Word of God is, is just a little uh, something that we can do to, to celebrate and to honor the God who gives us his word. And so thank you for being a part of that this morning. You know, I remember when my wife Janice and I, when we were first married, it was the first summer that we had been married, um, and uh, we, one weekend we were just driving around uh, kind of aimlessly in rural Michigan. You know, we, it's kind of like in that season of life, you know, you kind of have those days where it's like, we don't have anything else to do, let's go do something. Okay. We were driving around um, trying to find something to do, <coughs> excuse me, um, and it was kind of getting into the evening, uh, and I remember driving, and, and, and at one point, Janice had leaned over to me, and she asked this very interesting question. Uh, she said, you know, I'm, I'm getting kind of hungry. Uh, where are we going to eat? Did you catch the little little shift there? Um, and, I, you know, I paused for a second, um, and then I, 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 I turned to her, and I, I said, I asked a moral question that I'm sure every husband in here has asked at some point uh, in your marriage, probably multiple times in your marriage. I said, beautiful, is this a test? Right, testing is something that we're all very familiar with. Right, sometimes tests are these fun, playful little moments and opportunities that come into uh, our relationships. Other times, they... they they take a turn, they turn into something else. I also remember my freshman year at Purdue when my relationship with tests kind of took a turn. 
Um, right? See, I don't know how this got approved, but somehow, somewhere, someone in the bowels of an administration building in higher academia decided that the best way uh, to, to test the competency of 18 and 19-year-old uh, young people to like solve complex, real-world, team-based problems uh, was through these things we called midterms. Right? And here's how they decided they'd do this. Right, hey, we're going to give these 18 and 19-year-olds uh, a, te- a, a taste of freedom for the first time in their life. For like six weeks, we're gonna go, they're going to go wild. Right? Like, no, no, like just, go, just do whatever they want. And kind of in the meantime, we're going we're gonna to teach them the basics. Right? We're going to make sure they've got that covered. Can you add and subtract? Okay, good, good. You remember your multiplication tables? Good, good. Your lab safety goggles, you remember how to put those on and the gloves and whatnot? Yep, yep. Remember how gravity works? Yep, stuff always falls. Yep, got that? Okay, good. Okay, once we've got basics covered, then we'll bring them into this dimly lit lecture hall. We're going to lock the doors, and we're going to smack them in the face with theoretical physics for three hours. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. But I remember my first exam uh, and literally going to my TA because right, we had these giant 400-person lectures, right? And you like meet with like 18 TAs to actually under, try to understand what was actually happening in life uh, and the world. And, uh, you know, God, God bless my TA. He, so he was not a, he was a, he was an exchange student. English was not his second language, but he was doing his absolute best. And this was like, I don't know, for some reason, uh, Purdue decided they weren't going to just post uh, exam scores on Online where you could just check things privately and have conversations, but he was kind of going through all of our, our section. He was like, you got 18, you got 19, you got, you got seven, you got, he's telling like how many questions we got right on the test, and he comes to me and he says, uh, John, John S., John S., uh, you, you, have, you have 13. Okay. You know, there's like 20-something questions on the test. Like, I'm feeling, oh, oh, sorry, 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 no, uh, 13%. You got three. You got... Right, there's a reason I'm up here. Um, right, but testing is actually a theme that we see throughout the scriptures. Right, in fact, it's, it's one of the primary ways uh, that spiritual beings interact with humanity. Through, this, through these series of tests. And tests come from every direction, right? There are tests in Scripture that reveal uh, the nature and the character of God. Uh, there are some tests that reveal uh, the integrity or the, the, the strength of, of character or the, uh, commitment to faith of individuals. And there are also some tests uh, that tempt people into making decisions that bring about chaos and forces of death against them and their community. And so uh, testing in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, a testing what we see in scripture is that it's either an opportunity or it's a trap. And so the question is, how do we determine, how do we tell between those what are we are we dealing with an opportunity right is this an opportunity uh, for us to lean into the life God has made available to us to take a step toward becoming the kind of people that God wants us to be or is this a test is this a door that ultimately leads to death what determines that which side we're on well what determines is the heart behind the one testing us in, in our story that we read this morning from Matthew 4, uh, from the very beginning, we see both hearts on display. 
Right In verse 1, our test begins, uh, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so, uh, as, we, as we kick off here, Jesus is certainly about to face off with an adversary seeking to trap him, seeking to destroy him. But notice the other heart that's at work. Who's initiating this test? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit. God. So certainly the devil believes he has set a trap for Jesus, uh, but he's unaware that God is actually rewriting and reworking his trap uh, to turn it into an opportunity for Jesus to step in uh, to his purpose, his calling, uh, to open a way for the rest of us uh, to follow. God is using this moment to remove the power of the enemy's schemes. This is what Paul's talking about later uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says this in verse 13. He says, writing to to people just like you and I, he says, don't worry, no temptation has overtaken you except what's common uh, to humankind. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. uh, But when you are tempted, he, God, will also provide a way out so that you can endure. The author of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 10. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. There's a lot of theologically dense language there in that Hebrews passage, so let me uh, simplify it uh, this way. Because he actually taught, he's speaking about what we were reading in Matthew 4. He's speaking about Jesus. Right? And what he's saying is, when we read about Jesus, we're not reading some ethereal legend. Right? We're not le- reading some mythological story. We're actually watching a real flesh and blood human being. Right? He actually, Jesus actually faced down the things that we read about. He actually did the things that we read about. And because he did those things, you and I now have a playbook. Right? We have a, a, a method uh, and a, a, a process to follow so that when we face those same tests, we can take traps and turn them into opportunities. We can, we can use the tests and the temptations and the sufferings that we face, we can use them to take a step closer to being the kind of people that God is making us to be. And so our test begins uh, in verse 2. After for, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he, Jesus, uh, was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, uh, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It's important to note that the test doesn't begin uh, when Jesus is at his strongest. Right? The tempter doesn't come to Jesus when he's got it all together. Right? The tempter comes to him in a moment of weakness, in a moment of vulnerability, and he's seeking to exploit that weakness. And look at the first thing he hears. First thing, the first attack that Jesus has to face. If you are the Son of God. I see the, the enemy is attacking Jesus' sense of identity. See, right before this story, uh, in Matthew 3, we have the, the story of Jesus' baptism. Right? And, and the story of Jesus' baptism ends like this in verse uh, 16. It says, as, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love. 
with him I am well pleased. He's given his identity and he's led into the, into the, into the wilderness by the Spirit for 40 days. He's tired, he's exhausted, and the first attack he hears, if you are, did God really mean what he said? Are you really the son of is are you really dearly loved? See, for Matthew's uh, original audience, this challenge would have sounded very familiar to them. It would have reminded them of another test. See, in the very first pages of scripture, uh, humanity through Adam and Eve faced this same challenge. See, God created the world, and God created humanity, and he placed humanity in this special relationship, and he gave Adam and Eve this unique identity, this unique mission to tend and care for God's good world, right? to spread God's goodness across uh, the, the whole earth. And as soon as they embarked on that journey, this tempter, this deceiver came to them in the form of a serpent in Genesis 3. Right now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say if you are the son of God? See, it's the same attack. It's the same trap. The intent of the question in Genesis 3 and the statement here in Matthew 4 is the same. It's to sow the seed of doubt in the, the, the hearer uh, to get them to try to question whether God can really be trusted. Uh, to turn away from God's provision, what God has provided, and to attempt to, to make life happen on their own. Right? And so the challenge from verse 3, right? if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread, is essentially this. Do this on your own. Like, you don't, you don't need God. You're perfectly capable of caring for yourself, of providing for yourself, of making life happen. And we know how Adam and Eve responded in Genesis 3. It's the same way that all of us do when we, when we first face this temptation. Well, you know what? You're right. You know what? At the end of the day, like, I can do this without God. Like, I can make life happen. We make that choice and then we make a mess of our lives and the lives of the people around us. Right, but, but pay careful attention to how Jesus responded. In verse 4, Jesus answered, he said, It is written. Right, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written. What is Jesus referring to here? Whoop, not that. This. <laughs> this. All right, before we unpack the specific reference he's making here, because uh, that is really important to what's going on, I want us to lean into kind of this first part here, because this response, it is written, is how Jesus is going to answer every single challenge he faces. And so he appeals to scripture. But why does that matter? Why is that significant for you and I? Well, because here in Matthew 4, uh, I want to be very clear what we're looking at. We are looking at the 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 one person in human history with literally infinite possibilities at his disposal, right? Jesus is without a doubt the most knowledgeable, the most creative, the most sharp-witted and resourceful man that has ever set foot on our planet. And with everything at his disposal, with any way that he could have responded to the enemy here, what did he decide was the best way to do it? 
this. Right? What best equipped him to be able to withstand anything that the enemy could throw at him? This. Not only that, uh, but think about it this way. Uh, Here in Matthew 4, Jesus absolutely could have just thrown off the veil. Right? He could have just flexed his divine muscle. He could have commanded any number of angelic beings to intervene. He could have even just told the, the devil to stop to knock it off, to get out, to to beat it, to hit the bricks, right? Jesus could have just stepped into our world in full glory, unrestrained to answer any sort of doubt or question about who he was, what he could do, or whether or not he actually had authority over our world, but he didn't. Why? Well, because you can't do any of those things, right? I, I can't do any of those things. I can't tell you how many times when I've faced these same kind of temptations, right? when I've faced adversity and situations that just overwhelm me and I'm tired and my confidence is shaken and I've, just, I've, I've thought, God, would you just do something about this? God, would you just intervene, split the sky, do what you do? Why aren't you doing something? Why haven't you said something? Why are you just leaving me here overmatched, unprepared, thinking like somehow, God, you're holding out on me? But it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, I get so fixed on what God might do or what God could do, or really what I want God to do, that I miss the miracle of what he's already done, what he's already given. All right, so it is written, is this simple declaration from Jesus in the face of temptation when he's at the end of his rope, and it's just a reminder to all of us that God has already given us everything we need. Last week we saw that God has made his power available to us. And it's a power that we can trust. And now through his word, we see how we can walk in that power. How we remain in that power. See, Jesus sees his identity challenged. And so as the son of God, he's tempted to make life happen on his own. To make life happen apart from God. And he answers this way, like it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So where does this particular challenge come from? What is he referencing? Well, actually, each time the tempter, each time the devil comes to Jesus with a challenge in this story, Jesus answers out of a very specific place, the book of Deuteronomy. Now, keep in mind uh, Jesus' context, like not just, not just the challenge before him here, but everything that he's experiencing, his exhaustion, his, like just everything that he's been through to get to this moment. And now we're going to read what God said through Moses to the people of Israel uh, here. It actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, and here's what it says. Moses says, be very careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord has promised on oath to your ancestors. So basically what Moses is saying here is, hey, this is the goal, right? This is what God is laying before you. He's offering you a good life and a land and a promise. He's going to fulfill that. And here's how you get there in verse 2. He says, remember uh, how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. So we see the purpose of the test here 
is not just to show us who we are, but it's this idea of like God is testing us to see if we're the kind of people that can live in God's world, right? The kind of people who can live under God's authority. And we've been in uh, this Exodus series the last number of years, or number of years, not number of, number of weeks. Um, Exodus took a number of years, 40 years, right? But anyway, um, been in this Exodus series, and as we've seen, like every time that God issues a command, like, hey, can you do this? How good are the people at following it? Just like you and me, which is to say, not great. Right? So God is doing this to show, like, hey, can you actually live under what I say is best? And the answer is no. But look at how God responds. He doesn't cut him off. In verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which is really interesting because manna literally means nothing, right? The word manna means what, what, what is this? What is this? And so the story, as the story goes, uh, when the people were in the wilderness, uh, again, there's not a whole lot of farming going on. There's not a whole lot of like, like livestock or anything like that. They're, so they're very limited in resources and how they get to where they're going and all confusing and they're hungry and they're thirsty and how's God going to get us from here to there, and all these questions. And every morning when they came out of their tent, when they woke up, what they found was this weird dust that just covered the ground. And so what they were instructed to do is as they gathered this dust, they literally picked it up and said, what, what, what is this? Right? That word literally means manna. And so what God said is, as you gather this dust, as you grind it together and bake it, it became this nourishing bread that sustained an entire nation of people for 40 years. For 40 years, God sustained the nation of Israel with his direct presence and action. Fed you with manna, but, which means, again, what is this? And he, why did he do all of this? Right, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, Jesus, so many generations later, in a similar wilderness, after 40 days of fasting, now he faces the same temptation the people of Israel faced. And instead of reaching for his own power, of failing to trust that God would provide, he fully entrusts himself to God. Say, no, no, even when there's nothing, even when it looks like there's no way out, God can sustain me with nothing. So then the devil comes with his second challenge in verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and made him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up uh, in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The tempter once again is trying to attack Jesus' understanding of his God-given identity. Right First, he tries to undermine his trust in God's provision, and now uh, the devil's trying to get Jesus to treat God like a genie, essentially. He's attempting to, to undermine his trust in God's protection. See, he's being a little bit more coy about this here. Uh, he, too, is appealing to Scripture. This is uh, Psalm 91 that the, the devil is quoting. Uh, and in Psalm 91, is all about how God's going to protect his people. And his challenge is essentially this, that God won't let anything bad happen, that God is only trustworthy as long as he doesn't allow suffering or hardships or you to come under any pain or anything like that. 
Right, my sophomore year at Purdue, uh, I attended this this lecture as a, as a debate uh, between uh, four people. On there were two on one side that described themselves as secular humanists, and there were two on the other side who uh, described themselves as prof- professional apologists. And so the debate was essentially prove God's existence, why does God exist, all this kind of this back and forth stuff. And uh, I'll be honest, I don't really remember much about what was said for God. My bad. Um, I'm sure they did great. Uh, But what I do vividly remember uh, was at one point one of the presenters on the the humanist side, right, the side that says that there is no God, that God doesn't exist. At one point, uh, he, he was, in his remarks, he stopped, and from under the table, he pulled out this big jug of antifreeze. He poured a little bit uh, of it into a a styrofoam cup. And he said, you know, in your Bible, uh, your God claims that he will always protect his chosen people. He said that he will will actually literally allow you to drink poison and not be harmed. And he offered the cup. He said, uh, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, any one of you who won't come and drink this now... Well, actually, what you're saying is you don't believe that your God can do the things that he claims he can do. Don't worry. Nobody took him up on the offer. No. But even as a 19-year-old, like, sitting, uh, you know, I was still kind of, like, searching through, like, who I was going to be and how I understood Jesus and uh, this whole Christianity and church thing. And uh, even in all of my questioning and, and, and doubt in that season, I remember thinking, you know, this sounds familiar. And as I recall, uh, it didn't turn out too well for the one who issued this same kind of tactic. Because you see, the thing the devil is trying to do here in, verse, in Matthew 4, in verses six, 5 and 6, like it's the same challenge, right? That God won't let anything bad happen to you, and if something bad does happen to you, then God is not really trustworthy. And Jesus answers him in verse 7. He says, hey, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, uh, it is written, right? And there's no divine smackdown. There's no angelic powers. Uh, Jesus doesn't need any of that. Uh, The God-revealed, God-breathed words of Scripture are fully sufficient to the task at hand. And here uh, in in, uh, verse 7, Jesus once again points us back to Deuteronomy. And see, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And it says this. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Now the question for us to ask is, okay, well, what happened at Massa? Like, why would Moses say this? What happened there? Well, see, Massa is this place, is the, basically it's the wilderness in between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai. Right, And so what happened there was, if you remember the story of the Exodus, we have the plagues, we have all of the, the, like the lights and craziness that happened with that, God delivering through the, the miracle of the Passover, God literally splitting the sea, and then he brings them on to the other side, and there's a wilderness period in between the sea and, and where God comes down to give the people his covenant, his law, all that kind of fun stuff. And in between there, you would think, right, after everything the people of Israel had seen at that point, they're like, okay, God, like, whatever you say goes, we're on board. But that's not what happened. Right, instead of saying, you know what, God, like, hey, like, after everything we've seen, right, all of the plagues, like, the sea, like, like there, after literally fire in the sky to lead us and guide us, like, God, 
like you, you're trustworthy. We get you. Instead, what they do, they turn around and say, God, why'd you bring us out here to die? God, God, why couldn't you have just killed us in Egypt? Right? We're thirsty. We're hungry. How could you let this happen? And Moses, time and time again, tells them, do not put the Lord your God to the test because God has already proven himself. You see, the lesson from Moses and Jesus is the same. God is trustworthy even when I cannot see him. The devil implied that God is trustworthy only when he rescues us, only when life is good, only when we don't suffer or we're not in danger. And Jesus knew better. He said, no, God is actually trustworthy even when he allows suffering and hardships to happen. You know, this is why uh, Paul says, Paul can later tell us in Romans that there's absolutely nothing, right? There's not troubles, hardships, persecutions, famine. There's not uh, dangers. There's neither death nor life, angels, demons, past, present, heights, depths, anything in all of creation that is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Right? If God really loved you, he would let that kind of thing happen to you is the challenge. And Jesus says, you have such a small view of God and what's really going on. The enemy has one more challenge. In verse 8, Matthew 4. The, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all of their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. See, here is a little bit more of a, a kind of a dense, a kind of a confusing challenge. It seems pretty like, okay, like this is a pretty obvious one. So what's really going on here? See, here what, what is happening is the adversary, the devil, is presenting Jesus with the end goal that Jesus himself wants. He's presenting him with the end goal that God is actively pursuing. Right, that everyone in the world would recognize Jesus for Jesus. That they would, they would submit to him, that they would be under his authority. They would live in his realm, live in his kingdom, and, and gladly submit their lives to him. But the question is not just how do we, or what, like where are we going? The question is how do we get there? And so the challenge here from the, the, the enemy, the, cha- the temptation Jesus faces here is to cut corners. To accomplish God's mission by somebody else's method. And to do things his own way for his own purposes. See, Satan is challenging Jesus to demonstrate his power and his authority apart from his love and his grace. So Jesus says to him, away with me, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. One more time, Jesus appeals to Deuteronomy. And here's what it says in Deuteronomy. It says, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. See, but what's interesting is you notice even on the screen, there's, there's two references. So this, is, this actually happens in Deuteronomy 6.13, and then again in Deuteronomy 10.20, it says the exact same thing. So well, that's interesting, right? Well, what's really interesting and connected to our story is what happens between those two verses. See, in Deuteronomy 6, Moses lays out the heart of the covenant. God has chosen you. He has picked you to be a special people. He has given you this mission for, to dedicate yourselves, uh, you and your families, to the Lord. Uh, be his representatives in, in all the land. Spread his goodness to the whole earth. 
Right? And then in Deuteronomy 7, 8, and 9, and then the first part of chapter 10, Moses actually starts to lay out every single way the people are going to fail. He said, God's going to bring you into this new land. And when you get there, there's going to be people that practice strange things, that worship strange gods, and their practices are going to look really appealing, and you're going to go that way. You're going to forget God. You're going to forget what he's done for you. You're going you're to allow yourself to be pulled in all of these different directions. But as you do this, don't like, every time he says this, God's going to bring you back. God's going to bring you back. He says, you're going to forget about the kind of people that you're committing to be. You're going to forget God's mission. You're going to forget your covenant. But don't worry, God's going to bring you back. And so by referencing this part of Deuteronomy here, what is Jesus saying? What is he refusing to give into? Well, the simple translation is this, that there are no shortcuts in the ways of God. Right? Jesus is refusing to accomplish God's mission by someone else's method. God's kingdom is not the kind of kingdom initiated by some short-changed vision of power. It's not initiated by some grand, uh, like grand act of power and control. It's initiated by a cross, by love demonstrated fully on a cross. Echoing the ancient words of King David, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God an offering that costs me nothing. So what can, what can you say, right? What can you do to a person that committed uh, to the word, that committed to, to, to living out the way of God as, as set up uh, throughout the scriptures? Nothing, right? And so that's why verse 11, like after that fails, the devil has nothing else. Like the devil, the devil leaves. And as he does that, after he leaves, angels come and attend to Jesus. They care for him. But in all of this, in the telling of this temptation story, Matthew is trying to get across one, uh, like, abundantly clear, making one thing just unmistakable, that in Jesus, what you have is the true Israel. Right, the people of Israel uh, were, were supposed to be this nation of priests. Right? They were supposed to be these divine representatives intended to represent God to the entire world, to spread the blessings and goodness of God across the face of the earth. Yet just like us, just like you and me, every step of their journey, they failed. They, they, they took a step back. They turned away from God. They, they, they could not live up to what they committed to do. And so in this story, in Matthew 4, what Matthew is telling us is every place that people have failed in the past, Jesus is now succeeding. Jesus has won where everyone else has failed. Jesus is now the person that we can trust to be the kind of person that God needs to change the world, to initiate his kingdom. But Jesus' success is not to, to just to now condemn everyone else. He's not doing, Jesus doesn't succeed to gloat or to show off. No, in fact, Jesus gives his victory away. Jesus imparts his victory to everyone that has come before him, after him, and, and will come. He makes his faithfulness, his righteousness available to anyone, not just in Israel. Right, because he makes this same offer available to you and me. 
Right? The truth is that you and I walk this same road. Right? That you and I, uh, we, we walk this same journey. We face this same kind of temptation day in and day out. We take this same test, and if we're honest with ourselves, we fail. Right? We fail to trust in God's provision. Right? We fail to trust in God's power and his presence. We fail to trust that God actually knows what's best. And we fail to live out God's mission. Right? To be the kind of people who can spread God's goodness until it covers the entire world. But where we fail, Jesus succeeds. Jesus wins. Jesus is victorious. And not just for Israel, but for us. See, Jesus didn't just pass Israel's test. He passed your test. You know, it's been 16 years, uh, give or take a few days, or something like that. I don't know. But I still remember uh, that debate at Purdue. I remember in the closing statements, I remember the anger and the heartbreak in the voice of the, the presenter who was so sure that, that if God existed, that there, there's nothing that he, that nothing we see of the suffering, the hardship of human life, that none of that would ever be a thing. And so he, he was just so angry and, and demanding that God show himself. If he was real, why would any of this happen? You know, and, and, and I remember the anger and the heartbreak that, that, that many of my friends also shared. And for uh, my, myself, I, I remember regret and not having the adequate words to, to comfort them, to help them to see the bigger picture, right? And if I'm honest, in my own life, there are so many times that I even now fail to see the bigger picture. I fail to see what God is trying to show me, what God is doing around me in my, in my life and the relationships of people around me. I fail to take advantage of the opportunities before me. I fail to see the traps that I fall into. But it's like Hebrews tells us, well, what we fail to... With everything that we fail to see, you know what we do see is Jesus. We do see Jesus. He unpacks this a little bit more in verse 17. He says, for this reason, he had to be made like them. Jesus had to be made made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. And check this out. He is now able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus passed your test. He did what you and I cannot do. And more so, not only did he atone for our failures, but Jesus turns around and he now opens up a way uh, for us through temptation into life with God. He shows us how we can respond. To show how he shows us how we uh, can stand through trials, temptations, and suffering. And, and how do we remain standing when the adversary comes against us? When we face these kind of things, we stand on the same thing Jesus did. We stand on this. We stand on the revealed word of God that lights God. This this, this word given to us to light our way back to God. See, the word gets us to Jesus, and Jesus takes care of the rest. And that's the truth that we build our lives on. So here in a moment, uh, we're going to pray, and we're going to have an opportunity uh, one more time together as a church family to respond to this God uh, in, in worship. 
Uh, and so my challenge this morning is that if you've never had a moment in your life, you've never had a conversation in your life where you've been able to unpack what it means to follow Jesus, to make your life like his, I encourage you, please don't leave here without talking to somebody. We don't have to have a full conversation. Well, well, well I guess it's an evolving process. Well, we'll take time, I promise. You can talk to me, you can talk to Rob. There are many people uh, in this community that would love to have that conversation with you that can show you exactly uh, the, the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. And so I highly encourage you to talk to somebody this morning, to take that step and to see uh, your life change in the process. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna respond. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for uh, your word that shows us how we can respond to the, the, the stuff in our life that just doesn't make sense. The temptations, the trials, the sufferings, the hardships. Uh, God, uh, it's so easy to give in uh, to uh, our own way, to do things the way we think is best. Um, and God, in the end, those choices always uh, lead us to places we don't want to be. Uh, it leads us to pain and to hardship uh, that we don't want to face. But God, you have been faithful. You are faithful to provide us a way uh, to do things differently, to live differently, to be a different kind of people. And it's all because of what you have done for us through Jesus. And so God, we thank you for the way that you have showed us uh, a better way uh, to live, a better way to love um, and, how, and we just ask uh, for your presence today to help us take a step towards Jesus, to follow the path that he set before us. We love you, God. We trust you, and we pray all this in the name of your Son and our Savior. Amen.